talk about a person offering all that he is, even if it means uh, death. I think it's uh, David. But before we look at David, we want to look at a very deliberate contrast that the Lord is setting up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze uh, armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Father God, we thank you for your word. We want to understand every aspect of it. We want to tremble at your word, to love your word, and to live out your word. And we pray that you would sanctify us by your word this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in government uh, high school in ninth grade, I was the smallest kid in our class, and there were several bullies who used to pick on me and even beat me up after uh, school, and uh, it was uh, quite a trial. I uh, uh, had a hard time uh, fighting back because they always had their friends tagging along, and any time I resisted, uh, all of them would descend on me like a pack of hyenas. And uh, so I was always looking, strategizing the the last few periods of the afternoon, which would be my route home, because I was always trying to figure out how to outwit them and go away where they wouldn't catch up with me. And if they did see me, I'd be far enough ahead, maybe I could outrun them, but I was a lousy runner. Uh, So I was always doing everything in my power to avoid them. But one of the things I found fascinating is at least two of these bullies were cowards when there was another bully Uh, that was around. And uh, even with the the bigger bullies, uh, they didn't seem to mess with you when there were bigger people there. Uh, For example, when one time I was walking with my dad and I saw a bully on the the street and uh, he looked like he was trying to avoid me like the plague. My dad was a pretty tough dude, a big looking dude. And it was an interesting thing. I, I, I grew up realizing if we depend in our own strength, there's always going to be something or someone who's going to be stronger than us, uh, somebody who can do us in. 
Now, the other thing that I found interesting about these bullies was that they were uh, cowards, well, except for one of them. He, he didn't seem to be a coward, but they were cowards when it was just them and me all by ourselves. I was willing to fight back if it was a fair fight, but these guys looked like they were invincible, or so I thought. Well, I made friends just a week before with uh, another uh, small guy about my size in ninth grade. By the end of ninth grade, I grew incredibly. I was the second biggest in our class, Uh, (laughs) so it made a big difference one year. But uh, this kid was about my uh, age. He was also a a Christian, and he got picked on uh, like crazy as well. And I remember standing in the play field with him, and these bullies came around, and they were knocking this kid around and just pestering him. He just kept saying, quit it, quit it, quit it. And finally he got mad, and he grabbed the bully. It was twice his size, probably twice his weight, and quick as a flash, he turned around with his whole body four times, and this bully's arm was broken and mangled, uh, and he was on the ground with the snot pouring out of his nose. (laughs) And I just stood there in amazement that uh, this little David had won the victory in just a flash like that over this Goliath. I mean, in my mind, victory was impossible. So it wasn't even anything I achieved. In my spirit, I had long ago even given up trying to tangle with these bullies. And so I was kind of nervous about this kid because he was saying he's not going to uh, give in to these bullies at all. And uh, sure enough, uh, uh, he was able to put them, he was able to put them at, at bay. I was beginning to wonder, uh, previous to this, if uh, the only way I could survive was if I joined one of these bullies' gangs. Now, thankfully, my Christian principles wouldn't let me do that, and my parents would have given me a lot of rough time if I'd ever done anything like that. But uh, there are bullies in every age. We have bullies today, like the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, that are sicking the IRS on churches and... uh, Uh, They end up being frivolous uh, lawsuits, but they harass and they're harassing until they intimidate uh, the board of a a church into saying, look, we are not going to be preaching on anything controversial. It's a bullying tactic that they are using. We have bullies who have taken over the arts, the media, the news, sciences, and government and made it look like it's impossible to have a reversal. In fact, many Christians have explicitly said this in literature, in their books, that really this is not a battle that we can win. We're just waiting here until the second coming for Christ to uh, bail us out. It's really, in many cases, the viewpoint of the Scottish nobles in that movie Braveheart. Uh, who, you know, would make compromises here just to get ahead a little bit over there. And it kind of took the wind out of the sails of people who really wanted to achieve liberty. They didn't want compromises. It made them feel uh, like they were being betrayed by these people. Very few brave hearts today with any vision. Instead, what's happened is that Christians have befriended the bullies. Let me give you some examples. Why do most pastors in Omaha refuse to preach on certain subjects from the Bible. Now, I can't speak for all of the pastors, but there are several that I have challenged on this and said we've got to be preaching the whole counsel of God. And when I've talked about abortion and some of these other things, they've said, no, no, I don't want to get in trouble with the state. And so they have really succumbed uh, to a bullying tactic from those who uh, are out there. The bullies of evolution have been so intimidating that most Christians have tried to reinterpret Genesis chapter 1 as if it teaches evolution. You could read Genesis 1, you won't find evolution anywhere in there. It doesn't even remotely look like evolution. And uh, 
uh, yet uh, these guys are trying to be friends with the bullies. Of course, the evolutionists, they look at uh, these Christians who are trying to gain some respect, and they say, that's idiotic, you know? You can't take diametrically opposed principles like that, and uh, they see that it does not work. The bullies of licensed psychology have been so strong that not all, but almost virtually all Christian colleges and seminaries have succumbed to licensed psychology instead of biblical counseling. Uh, You you see it everywhere. And even when Christians are willing to fight against uh, sodomy and abortion and socialism, they do so using the principles of the world rather than using the principles of Scripture. They don't want to inject God and the Bible into the debate, let alone to have the Bible be the foundation of the debate. So let's dive into this story, because I think it teaches us a lot about how to handle bullies or how not to handle bullies. Don't do it like Saul did. And this story begins uh, with the bullying of the Philistines. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. Now, if there's one thing that's very clear from the secular record of the Philistine uh, archives is that they were constantly trying to take over new territory. In fact, if you look in your outline at the first map on the left-hand side there, uh, you will see that just like the Vikings of a much later age, uh, these guys came down from the north and they were pillaging all down along the coastlands, taking over some territories, but certainly robbing the citizens of a great deal of what was uh, there. And by 1060 through 1000 B.C., which is the first chapters of uh, 1 Samuel, uh, they were at the height of Philistine power. In fact, uh, they had already uh, uh, been the uh, the reason for the collapse of the Hittite empire, which is quite a feat. The Hittites were incredibly powerful people uh, themselves. They were feared because of their superior weaponry, And before Saul came to power, they had completely taken over the whole map there, all of Palestine. They were controlling. Uh, For example, chapter 13 makes it very clear that they made it illegal for Israelites to be blacksmiths, and it explains why. They didn't want any blacksmiths making swords and spears for the Israelites. Uh, It was a bullying tactic to try to keep these people from having uh, any kind of weapons. And uh, the bullies were ruthlessly trying to suppress uh, insurrection. And with their fearsome chariots, they were able to maintain control over a huge area. So that's a summary of the first map that's in your outlines. And really, that covers the first chapters of 1 Samuel. The second map shows the stages of Philistine control after Saul became king. Now, initially, King Saul... Uh, was favored by God, and he was able to push the Philistines back into what is the diagonal-shaped uh, portion of the, uh, of the map down on the, the bottom left there. And uh, it was still a much bigger territory than the Philistines had originally occupied, but at least they were contained. But as Saul began to backslide, God used the Philistines to discipline his people, to try to bring his people uh, to uh, repentance. Now, you can see by the big, bold arrows there that the Philistines were regaining huge chunks of Judah, Simeon, and Dan. Okay, verse 1 continues, And were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damin. 
Now, Ephes Damim means border of blood. This was the place where they finally were able to hold the advancement of the Philistines, and it was because of David. Uh, this was the place of blood because it was the place of massive slaughter uh, that took place. But finally, there was a border. They were being able to push uh, the Philistines uh, back where they, uh, where they had come from. Um, Soko was just 15 miles away from David's hometown, Bethlehem. So you can see this is a little bit close to, to home. But even though the main army controls what on the map there are the big uh, fat arrows, even though the main army controlled those areas, there were still pillaging um, uh, groups of Philistines that would go up and, and plunder. And uh, some of them would probably bring it back to the army. Some of them were just enriching themselves. And so if you think of the terror that the Vikings much, much later brought to the Europeans, then you'll have a little bit of an understanding why the Israelites were so fearful of the Philistines. It's really a pretty good parallel of what was going on. And I think all of this is a metaphor for our spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. There can be no rest. If you are not fighting against Satan, there is going to be advancement into your life uh, personally. Now, it's not just on an individual plane because he goes after everything he can take. He'll come after your family. You may have had tremendous success in this past year pushing the Philistines back out of your family, uh, back to the coastlands, but if you rest on your laurels, if you just relax, Satan will do everything he can to appeal to your flesh, uh, bring worldly enticements in to try to make your family ineffective. He fights against the church. And you can see denomination after denomination that has become liberal, doesn't even believe the Bible anymore, certainly is not fighting aggressively against immorality. Satan has been successful in that fight. Now, that didn't happen overnight. Uh, Jeremiah gives us the principle of why. He says, because you are not valiant for the truth. It's not enough to say, yeah, I believe that to be true. We need to be valiant for the truth, pushing the truth of the Scriptures into every nook and cranny of life, not allowing any square inch of our lives that we have influence over of being exempt from the lordship of the Scriptures. And of course, we've seen Christianity pushed back in our nation as a whole, haven't we? Back in 1969, just 40 years ago, back in 1969, homosexuality was a crime in every state of the union except for Illinois. And most people wouldn't have even dreamed of decriminalizing it. It was an offense uh, to, to, most, uh, to most Americans. But homosexuals had been engaged in a very deliberate attempt to take over the media and the schools and big corporations and, and, and government and, and the arts and entertainment. And they were not intimidated. They had a strategy. They were taking it on, and they were very, very successful. Uh, this past summer, there was a, a, a movie that they uh, put out that uh, dealt with the riots uh, of 1969, the, the homosexual riots, uh, they, they called the movie Stonewall Uprising. I haven't seen it, and I don't plan to see it. Apparently, it's a, a, a pretty bad piece of propaganda. But what has happened? They called that the Rosa Parks of the homosexual movement, okay? Uh, in, in, in there, they said they had made their deliberate attempt to invade every area of life, trying to take things over. It was a very concerted plan. And what's happened in the last 40 years is that the homosexual lobby has gained such control in America that now they are the bullies that are trying to invade every aspect of life and trying to pull us into submission to their will. Just as one example, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to be in prayer 
for the city council vote that is coming up this Tuesday. Uh, uh, Councilman Gray uh, gave the suggestion to the mayor, and he had the city attorney draft this article and has given it to, so he's definitely involved, to the city council to, to vote on. And what's going on in this bill is they want to force every business and every public entity, which looks like it probably includes churches. I uh, I talked with uh, one church uh, person. He said, oh yeah, churches will be exempted. But who cares? This is just not right. But anyway, try to force them to accept and approve of homosexuality or face criminal charges. This is not about civil rights at all. They have civil rights. They've got the same right to a a trial that uh, we do. They They have uh, all of the rights. This is not about that. This is about forcing others. I mean, they can start their own business, but no, they want to to force every other business to accept their lifestyle. And so, again, this is bullies at work, and uh, there are many other examples that you could probably think of along these lines. Every age has its bullies, and we are facing the bullying of the world, the flesh, and the devil right now. They're trying to take back everything that Christianity once influenced. Now, here's the vital question. This is point number two. Are we going to win this battle like David or like Saul? Okay. Are we going to fight the enemies of abortion, communism, and sodomy, and other evils in our own strength? See, Saul was pretty strong. He was kind of the top of the, 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 the bullying pecking order in, in Israel and was able to bully Israelites into cooperating and supporting him. But when bully A meets a bigger bully B, sometimes he's at a loss of, of what to do, especially if he has to fight according to certain principles and the other bully uh, doesn't have any uh, principles. Here is the, the central issue that was the problem with Saul. He did not repent. He did not humble himself before the Lord and seek the Lord's assistance. And Scripture was quite clear. If he had, it would have made all the difference uh, in the world. Saul does not recognize that his ultimate battle is not with Philistines. His ultimate battle was with the demons that were driving those Philistines on. He, he didn't recognize that at all. Paul was a man who was persecuted by humans, by flesh and blood. He had been put into prison. He had been beaten by flesh and blood. But here's what he said. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And the writer of 1 Samuel says exactly the same thing. He gave us a clue when he said the Spirit of God had departed from Saul and a demon now had come to torment him. He's saying, this is spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. This is not flesh and blood warfare. Yes, they're involved, but where is the definitive victory going to be won? It's going to be won on our knees. It's going to be won in prayer. Now, Saul tries to meet the Philistines on their own ground with their own tactics and in his own strength. And he really didn't have any other option because the Spirit of God had left him. Ultimately, his goal was a conservative one, not a Christian one. His idea is, let's do everything that we can to maintain our lifestyle that we're comfortable with, the status quo. That's really the goal of modern conservatives, but that is not a God-glorifying goal. Look at verse 2. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, 
and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Now this was an incredibly strategic valley. The Philistines realized if they could control this valley, then they could control the central area that Saul uh, had in solid control under his armies. And I should have put that on our map as just a little circle area. If he could control this, it was strategic for controlling the rest of Israel. Now, because Satan is behind uh, some of these leaders, they're going to be very strategic. Now, why else would uh, these people have targeted, you know, the schools and the courts and the media? And the, the, over 100 years ago, they very deliberately had a strategy to take these things over. It's the, the Christians alone who have been the idiots who have just withdrawn from culture and said, oh, well, that's Satan's territory. We're not going to worry about it. Well, Satan takes over then, right? So Saul at least had that going for him. He knew this was strategic. It had to be defended, and it was at least there. So you've got to praise him for that. Well, back to our text. Why did they wait on their respective mountains? Forty days they waited. That seems a little bit strange. I think from the Philistine side, this was psychological warfare. On the Israelite side, this was really a defensive posture because militarily they were on the higher ground and if the Philistines came swooping up the mountainside, much easier to drive them back if they're higher than the Philistines are. So they stayed there as a defensive posture and they don't want to be down on the plains because the Philistines have these fearsome chariots. Uh, pretty amazing. They would have been decimated by the horses, the, uh, the, the, the infantry and the, and, the, uh, and the chariots that were down there. And so they're both thinking on a horizontal plane. By horizontal, I mean it, it excludes God. They're just thinking in terms of human tactics. Like modern Christians today who do not bring God into politics, economics, art, science, any military battles. There, there's no solemn assemblies. There's no saying, look, we're in deep trouble. trouble. Let's call our, our troops to repentance and fasting and prayer for the next day. Because we're not calling God into the equation, we end up... Uh, doing exactly like Saul. Saul did not know the power of God, the wisdom of God, the courage that comes from walking with God. Uh, it, it was not like David. Uh, David walked with God, and he had something supernatural that made a difference in everyday life. And we're going to be looking at the stark contrast in coming weeks between Saul and David. Now, can a Saul win political victories today? Well, absolutely, yes, and they may be the same kinds of victories that we can identify with, but it doesn't mean God's favor rests upon our nation. Can a Saul today win some pro-life victories? I would say absolutely, even without repentance, even without being a believer. They could win some pro-life victories, but it still does not mean that God's blessing rests upon our nation. It's just one bully replacing another bully. And he might get replaced later on. You know, it's a back and forth thing. It's not truly the blessing of the Lord resting upon us. Point three, I mentioned that the Philistines were playing a game of psychological warfare. When Israel had no champion who could fight Goliath, it was uh, a demoralization. Chapter 13 makes clear that Israel put their trust in the tall guy, Saul, it was head and shoulders above all of the other uh, uh, Israelites. And so it's pretty discouraging to be reminded day after day for 40 days, our champion is in no way uh, able to challenge the champion of the Philistines. Secondly, 
if the Israelites are fighting for freedom, Goliath points out this is rather silly. After all, they're slaves of Saul. And he's right in part. In part, he's right because God had already warned the people. Saul was going to be just like the Gentile kings who were around them, and that's exactly what happened. He had put the people into uh, a kind of, of slavery. And so what Goliath is doing is he's taking away the main reason why people will fight passionately. They will fight passionately for liberty. He said, you don't have liberty. You're under slavery to Saul. It's just going to be a change of bullies. You're going to go from being slaves over here to being slaves over, over under the Philistines. You just need to consider which bully is stronger. Third, if the Israelites are thinking about survival, Goliath gives them great reasons to lay down their arms. Hey, if you lay down your arms, you'll survive. Otherwise, we'll slaughter you. We'll kill you. It's just changing to a more powerful lord. You know, it's uh, just a transfer of bullies. Don't worry about it. Just join our gang is basically what he's saying. In fact, uh, let's just go through these verses here and see how the author is showing we must not put our trust in princes, in horses, or in the strength of man. Actually, later we're going to be seeing, later on in the chapter, he's going to be pointing out fundamentally these kinds of battles are determined spiritually, not carnally. Anyway, verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now commentators point out that the word for champion means literally man of the between. It's similar to mediator, but it's not a mediator. It's a a guy in the ancient Near East who would enter into a winner-takes-all contest, and basically it spared the armies a lot of fighting. So they said, let the gods determine whose uh, you know, side you're going to join. Let's put two people out, and this is going to be a duel to the death. Only one person needs to die. It wasn't just the Philistines. There were other ancient Near Eastern people that uh, engaged in this as well. And so it was an offer that he gives out. But who would be the likely candidate to fight such a tall man? Well, it would be Saul. First uh, Samuel 9, verse 2, and then uh, listed in the bulletin, chapter 10, verse 23, mentions that Saul was head and shoulders above all of the other Israelites, sort of like that Mongolian that's in the picture there. Uh, actually, just a little bit shorter than that Mongolian, but um, based on armor and skeletal sizes of people from that era, uh, most people believe that Israelites had an average height of about 5 foot 5 inches. And so most commentators say Saul was probably somewhere around six foot six inches. He was a tall dude, right? A pretty tall guy, about 11 inches smaller than the Mongolian in the picture there. Didn't want to mess around with him. As I mentioned, uh, he was the, the top of the bully pecking order in Israel. But take a look at Goliath's height. This is amazing. Verse 4 says he was six cubits and a span. Now, originally, spans began to be standardized, but originally the span was the distance between the tip of your thumb to the tip of your finger when it's outstretched. But a cubit, they had two different cubits. There was the small Hebrew cubit, which was 17.5 inches long, and then there was the long Hebrew cubit, which was 20.4 inches long. Now, if you take the long cubit, Goliath was 11 feet tall. Okay, that's pretty big. Now, most of my commentaries say, that's ridiculous. Nobody could be 11 feet tall. So the conservatives opt for the short span. They say it's 9 foot 9 inches. And uh, the liberals even say, that's ridiculous. And so they go with the Septuagint. The Septuagint said, well, it was 4 cubits. So he was 6 foot 6 inches. That that was their giant. 
uh, that uh, he was messing with. No, that's not the case at all. Now, I'm just going to take the conservative one. I-, I could go with either one, 11 foot, 9 foot, 9 inches. I don't even know how to determine. Did they use the short he- Hebrew cubit or the long one? I- I'm not sure uh, how to determine that. But just to give you an idea of how tall the short Goliath was, 9 foot, 9 inches, imagine the Mongolian in the picture as being two and a half feet taller and probably considerably, considerably broader. Or take a look at the Robert Wadlow picture there and add another 10 inches to that and probably double the width of Robert Wadlow. Okay? And commentators say, based on the, the weight of the armor, there's no way he could be a Robert Wadlow. This guy had to have been massive, just a massive guy in terms of width and bone density and all of that. Now, some people, liberals, think both measurements are absolutely ridiculous. So I just want to look at this whole thing of giantism uh, and give you a little bit of background on this. Uh, And I should tell you, if the Bible says it, that's good enough for me. Okay, that's the only infallible thing in life, right? We don't need anything else. But let me just share with you how history has all kinds of giants in it uh, that um, are plenty big. Uh, I saw a 13-foot skeleton with six fingers and six toes, but the tallest living man in the Guinness Book of World Records is that Robert Wadlow there, 8 foot, 11 inches. That's 10 inches shorter than Goliath. But from the 1700s to the 18, uh, to the present, actually, there are over 30 people who have been documented by reputable, not sketchy, but really reputable, solid contemporaries as being more than 8 feet uh, tall, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. And by the way, a lot of modern giants, it's because of a growth hormone that's gone out of whack. And these guys uh, really have health problems, skeletal problems. They have a hard time running around. And not these giants from the past. They were fast. They were incredibly strong. I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, there was a Christoph Munster who was the bodyguard of one of the electors of Germany. If you know your Reformation history, you know these... Uh, Uh, about these electors. Christoph Munster was nine foot six six inches tall, very well-proportioned body with enormous strength. Now, that's just three inches shorter than the short Goliath, okay, 9-9. And so I think liberals are smoking something when they say, this just can't be, it's impossible. No, there's well-known people in history that were around this size. Funham, a Scotsman who served Eugene II, the king of Scotland, very well-known giant, he was 11 foot 6 inches tall. Can you imagine how tall that is? 11 and a half feet tall. And again, he had the dimensions to go with it. Very solid structured, uh, structured bones. And so it really puzzles me that liberals say that 9 foot 9 inches is ridiculous and for sure we need to rule out uh, the 11 foot size. Biblical history and secular history tell us of giants who are a lot bigger than Goliath. So this, this is not a big deal. But his height alone would have been intimidating. Take a look at his strength. And I want you to notice the massive armor that he wore. This, this, was a, this guy was a dude. <laughs> Verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, 5,000 shekels is 126 pounds. Now, those of you who do weightlifting know, okay, that's pretty easy to weightlift, but try carrying around 126 pounds all day. I mean, that's, that's a lot of weight uh, to be carried. That's just his chain mail, okay? It's not the rest of his armor. He goes on, 
So uh, the point is, this is not a Robert Wadlow. Uh, Verse 6, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. So the spearhead alone was 15.1 pounds in weight. Now when you add up all of the armor that he is carrying, uh, you realize this is not a tall skinny guy with frail bones. Uh, He is a giant in every sense of the term. And with his armor, he just looked impregnable. Okay, let's go on to verse 8. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath was a very self-confident bully uh, who was very intimidating. Saul was fearful for obvious reasons. He was the logical pick to fight, but uh, he was no match for him. For a change, there was someone who was stronger than Saul. And when we trust in man, when we trust in man, God is going to guarantee he's going to bring along someone or something that's going to be a match for our man. Our trust is in the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, not in man. I think there's a lot of lessons can be learned from this introductory uh, session, but we do live in an age when humanism seems invincible, uh, whether you're looking at the family, the church, or the state. It's discouraging. It's very discouraging out there. Uh, We're overawed in the church, unfortunately, with the scholarship of the world. We're overawed with the finances and the power and all of the tools of the world. And we look at the tools that God has given to us of prayer and of repentance and of uh, biblical blueprints and fasting and things like that. We think, that's no match for them. And so what we do is we start borrowing from the weapons of the world to try to fight against the world. And it's really a silly thing to do. For example, the church has exchanged the clear truth of the Scripture for evolution in order to win evolutionists. It it didn't make any sense. And even evolutionists think that this is silly. There are 19 different theories of Genesis 1 that evangelicals have concocted to try to insert billions of years into Genesis 1. And you look at it and you just scratch your head and say, are these guys on dope or what is going on? And certainly the evolutionists are not impressed with them at all. But you know, you look at all of the compromises that are in the church and they flow from the same flawed idea that we think faith in the Lord and in His weapons is not enough. So we've got to borrow from the presuppositions and the tools of the world. Now let's end with five further applications. We've already been talking really a little bit about the first application, and that is that we must not see the culture wars of our day as being merely culture wars. They are that. And there are souls out there who are fighting these culture wars, and we're, we'd much rather that the soul win than that the Philistine win, right? So there are culture wars, But what's ultimately at stake? It's the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice the huge contrast between verse 25 and verse 45. In verse 25, the soldiers tell David, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. 
And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches. He will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes. I can just imagine Saul's offer is going up. You know, I'll give a bunch of money to the person who goes out and fights. There's no takers. So the next day he says, I'll give you more money. No takers. Well, I'll throw in my daughter. I'm not risking my life for that daughter. (laughs) And he says, okay, exemption from taxes. That's a pretty big offer. And still no takers uh, that are out there. But what we see in this speech is the absence of God's glory. Who's the one that's being defied in verse 25? It's Israel. They're the ones that are being defied. It's Israel's pride at stake. It's the party that is being defended. Now contrast that with verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He's saying it's not just the Israelites who have been defied. It is God himself who has been defied. Nor is David's trust just in weapons. Now, he uses weapons, doesn't he? Because everything is under Christ's lordship. But where is his trust? It's in the Lord God Almighty. Look at verses 46 through 47. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know. And he's speaking about the assembly of Israel. You know, this is a rebuke, really. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. We have got to be Christ-centered in our culture wars. This past Friday, I was invited to speak to a fundraising political event, and one of the things that I uh, briefly shared with them is that we, ha- we cannot leave God out of the equation and expect God to bless our efforts. We cannot do that. But that's exactly what's going on. Many times people are trusting their own efforts, agendas, methods, and ways, and they hope God will get behind their party platform. Okay, That's not what this passage is about. It's not God getting behind our agendas. It's us putting all of our efforts behind Christ's agendas. Right? We have got to be asking, Lord, what do you want me to do in this culture war? It's God's Word that's got to trump everything else. We've got to be Christ-centered. We've got to be gospel-centered in our politics. The second application is that we must not ever let down our guard against the mortal enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, you could just put into your outlines there Judges 2 and verse 22. Because God left enemies around, and here's one of the reasons why He left those enemies. He said to test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. So it was good for the church to have enemies where they would need to fight for the truth. You know, we may see a lot of Philistines out there. Don't be discouraged by that. It's simply God's test. Are we willing to follow and submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God? It's just God's test of us. The third application is that confidence in God such as David had has got to replace self-confidence. 
There's a lot of self-confidence out there. You know, you go to political rallies where it seems like uh, driving up confidence that we can win is the name of the game. Or you go to sales uh, rallies, you know, for salesmen and uh, humanistic self-confidence. But you know what? It's easy through words to rouse up confidence. And anybody who's fighting with each other, they've got confidence they're going to win. Otherwise, they wouldn't fight, would they? And yet one side always loses. That's totally different than David's confidence. David has a supernaturally given confidence and a faith that comes from walking with God. It's totally, totally different. His confidence comes from understanding God's grace, understanding his law, which is his blueprints, and understanding his promises. That's eschatology. Fourth application is that if our focus is humanistic rather than being God-centered, it will result in either pride on one hand or fear slash discouragement on the other hand. Pride is incompatible with faith, but fear is incompatible with faith too. Either one is incompatible. Verses 8 through 10 absolutely reek with pride. Goliath's assertions are just as prideful as the politics of today. That's why we don't need to fear the politics of today. Because what God says, I will resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. But he's not going to give grace to us. If there's nobody to give grace to, you know, the proud will continue to function. So he resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. But if we're fearful, he's not going to give us any grace. Fear is just as disastrous as pride is. In fact, it's the first Uh, sin that's listed as excluding from heaven in Revelation 21, verse 8. Why? Because the cowardice of verse 11 flows from the same horizontal thinking that does not take God into account. For the Philistines, there was only a valley between them. You know, they could take on Israelites. They didn't realize God was in that valley between them. Now, the Israelites, they have a valley of fear between them, and they're forgetting the fact that in the book of Numbers... It was fear of the giants uh, in a previous generation that kept them from even being able to enter into the land. Okay? So, um, faith looks to God, and because it sees God as the giant killer, it gives us hope. It inoculates us against both pride and fear. Think of all of the culture wars uh, that we've talked about in this sermon, and just apply this point to them. I think of the United Nations. Lee told me yesterday that this is United Nations Day. I didn't realize that. Uh, but uh, if you look at the symbols in your outline uh, at the United Nations building, uh, you'll realize that United Nations is a demonic anti-gospel that they hold to, uh, where the Bible promises that the gospel will eventually cause the nations to beat their swords into plowshares. United Nations promises to do it without the gospel. Here's a picture Right up here, I put a little apron on there because uh, <laughs> I didn't want to be given uh, naked men up here. But this is a picture of a statue at the United Nations of a naked, in other words, an utterly unassisted man, and I capitalized the word man on purpose. God is excluded, man is his own God, and man can do without the gospel what the Bible says only can be done through the gospel. Um, and then down here, is another picture across from the United Nations where it takes Isaiah 2, verse 4, uh, completely out of context. If you look at the first part of the sentence, I mean, they don't take the whole sentence. The first part of the sentence indicates it's God who's going to do this. 
It's through the gospel he will do this. And it's God who will bring the nations to repentance, which is a precondition to this happening. And so the only part that they quote, they like the fruit. Okay, I'm going to quote the fruit, but they don't like the root of the gospel. They quote, they shall beat their sores into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so this is very conscious, this is very deliberate. It is a prideful arrogance that leaves God out of the equation of anything that we do. But that's exactly uh, where this nation is headed. In fact, uh, Don Stenberg, I think he mentioned that uh, 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 President Obama uh, had quoted in a, a couple of different speeches. I listened to one, I couldn't find the other speech, but in a couple of different speeches, uh, the Declaration of Independence, and he leaves out the Creator. Okay, you've got the rights, but not the Creator who gives those rights. Well, if you leave out the Creator, then it's just privileges granted by the state is really what it amounts to. That's just humanism. Now, here's a picture of the European Parliament, which was deliberately made to look like the Tower of Babel. Okay, if that is not daring God, you know, see if you can do like what you said in Genesis. See if you can do that. I don't know what is. And then below it is an artist's merging of the famous Tower of Babel picture that most of you have seen together with this one to show the unfinished structure. Just like on the Tower of Babel, you can see on the right-hand side the unfinished structure. That's what's on the right-hand side uh, of this uh, building. And uh, what they're basically saying is what God tore apart in the Tower of Babel, these men think they can bring together by themselves. Now, why do I bring up these images? It's for this reason. We cannot ignore the demonic nature of these institutions today. They are demonic. We cannot ignore that. Our goal is not to make the United Nations better. It's to abolish the United Nations, okay? Our goal is not to make humanistic institutions better. It's to replace them with Christian institutions. Everything under the Lordship of Christ. And even though their words might be different than Goliath, they're just as humanistic today. Now, what's encouraging to me, and I'll get back to my point here. I've gone a little bit astray. But what's encouraging to me is that humanism is self-defeating because it always alternates between prideful self-confidence and fearful despair. Of necessity, it alternates between those two. In contrast, the Scripture says the just shall live by faith. Faith in God, the giant killer. You know, Hebrews 11 says that, uh, that believers down through history have been able to do impossible things. Why? Because by faith they're united to the God of all possibilities. It says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the enemies of the aliens. I've talked to pastors who say, oh yeah, that's stuff that's done before the first century. We no longer have that. No, no, no. God wrote Hebrews 11 so that we will do just like they did. That's what James tells us to do. He says, we need to imitate Elijah when we're praying. We need to be looking to the God who can do the impossible. Amen? We cannot be looking at it just through human, uh, human eyes. So do not be fearful of what's happening in America. And on the other hand, do not be arrogant and think, oh, yeah, this is easy. We can take this on. 
We do not have faith in princes, but in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, the last application is that only God's grace can offer true liberty. United Nations cannot do it. Democrats cannot do it. Republicans cannot do it. Constitution Party cannot do it. Heritage Party cannot do it. Uh, It is only God's gospel, His grace, that can produce liberty. In verses 8 through 9, because Goliath is looking at a horizontal plane, he only knows two options. What are his two options? You could be slaves of Saul, or you could be slaves of the Philistines. Oh, nice options. (laughs) Those are his two options. That word for servants, by the way, is a word for slaves. That is the impetus of our age. When... The state declares itself free from a higher law. Automatically, the citizens become slaves of the government's every whim. That's really uh, what it amounts to. That's the impetus of our age. America's former liberties will never be restored until God's grace redeems men and restores them to God's perfect law of liberty in His Word. Now, in conclusion, let me say, let's stop making false dilemmas in any area of life, including in the upcoming elections. Don't think of the only options as Goliath or Saul, right? Think outside the picture. What is Scripture calling me to? Okay, Uh, the problem uh, back here, uh, you know, God had already rejected both Goliath and Saul, so they were not an option. But the problem was the people were not ready for David. Now, they appreciated the fact that David was a Braveheart, like in uh, the movie Braveheart, okay? They're going to sing his praises later on in this movie, but they're not going to risk the wrath of Saul in order to follow David. It would take quite a few years before these people would become Bravehearts themselves and would be willing to follow a Braveheart. Now, we may, as a church in America, not be ready to follow a Braveheart today either, and that's okay. God still has other tools at hand. He can use the Philistines, and we need to be praying. If we have to face the persecution of the Philistines, that God would purify the church, strengthen the church, bring the church to repentance to the place where they will be out and out for Jesus, no matter what the results might be. That's what we ought to long for. Holiness in the church, not just uh, an outward victory. So if your trust is in a big guy to take on the modern Goliaths, forget it. There's always some bigger guy that can take that guy on. Your big guy may win, you know, this round, but then later on may be defeated. Our trust is in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement and the lessons and the testimonies and even the fact that your people, whom you have redeemed, many times made the wrong choices. We have made wrong choices. I have made wrong choices in the past. And we ask you to forgive us for for that. Father, help us to be more and more clear-sighted that we might be men, women, and children of faith, praying in faith, living in faith, thinking and planning in faith. Help us not, Father, to be borrowing from the world the presuppositions that drive them, but may we be driven by your word. And I pray, Father, that as we do so, our joy and our hope would increase, our faith would increase, and our love for one another would increase. May you receive the glory as we seek to live out this your word. In Jesus' name, amen.